So thank you for the opportunity to speak as part of this Love in Action series. It's a genuine honor to be here today, especially given the momentous nature of the events that have occurred in this space over the past few days. In these moments, I have witnessed the expression of love in action in our very own community. I've watched as you've joined in, praying for one another, holding for one another, weeping with one another, and I've heard so many testimonies of the work of God in your very lives. I want you to know that so many others are watching and that our love, God's love in our community is a deep witness to the world. It's a true witness of God's deep, deep peace. By now, I suspect hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions, have seen God's love in action at Asbury University. And what I would like to do today is to call us to walk deeper down into the streams of living water. In our series, we've been looking at Romans 12 through 14, and if you ask me to summarize what this passage is saying, I would say that Romans 12 through 14 tells us what the lived out Christian life looks like. We see a parsing out of what it means to genuinely be in Christ. Love in action is a witness to outsiders about what it means to genuinely follow him. And so we're tapping in in this series, we're going to continue the series as we have planned, uh, of what it means to have visible love in our community. As Francis Schaeffer, a scholar, said it, visible love is the mark of a Christian. For today, the love and action question is probably a bit different than you expect for the day before Valentine's Day, or maybe even for the middle of this moment, but I wanted to be true to the scriptures that we have read And I want to dig down deep in these scriptures and dig up some gems for us to walk with. In the midst of revival, I believe a focus must remain on the word of God given to us. It has truth, and truth can set us free. Today's focus is not on loving a person you really like, your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse. Today, for visible love, we are not talking about chocolate hearts, chocolate roses, or fluffy stuffed animals. These are beautiful things. And my friends, I accept all these sorts of loving gifts at my office door. (laughs) Just kidding. In reality, today's call to love will not produce any warm and fuzzy feelings. Rather, today's call to love, my friends, is a challenge, a challenge I think we're ready for. We have a big question here that Romans 13 is addressing. What does it mean to put love in action as the central tenet of our politics? In fact, what does it mean to put God's love in action as the center of every way we participate in any human institution? Before we begin, we need to realize what Romans 13 is not. This text is not an embarrassingly unqualified endorsement of the political status quo. Paul is not simply giving a stamp of approval for all of the actions performed by governmental institutions. He is not looking over and condoning the evil that governments sometimes do. 
Rather, if we understand the situation and the context, we see that Paul has something extremely important to say about the Christians and their relationship with external authorities. So what is he saying? How can we understand some of Paul's words, like these ones? The authorities that exist have been established by God. What can this possibly mean? We're going to begin to unpack, maybe as you would expect from a biblical scholar, a little bit of the context and the history that surrounds these passages. This might seem like a strange thing to say at first, but there's a contrast between a chapter like Romans 13 and a chapter like Revelation 13. In Romans 13, the external authorities are doing a decent job. Their approval rating, we might say, is pretty good. This is quite different from Revelation 13, where a beast is present, and it is waging war against people, against God's people. Revelation 13, 7 says of the beast, it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, and it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. In Revelation 13, we've reached desperate times. God's people are suffering intense persecution. So what is the point of Revelation 13? The point is that even though it seems like the beast is in control, in reality, God will conquer the beast. In other words, the beast has authority for a time, but that authority will be cut short by God who has ultimate authority over the beast. The whole point then of Revelation is to give hope that even in the midst of persecution, even no matter how ugly the beast is, God will win and full redemption will come. In light of God as king, even over the beast, the people could feel hope. Their persecution would not last forever. In fact, through their patient endurance and suffering, their patient endurance and suffering, they would give witness to the world that God is faithful. So in view of this evil, evil, evil beast that wages war, God's people, even in this context, they can love in action. How are they going to love in action? How are they going to love when the rulers of this world have gone wrong and they fail to do any good deed? Revelation 13 answers the questions. This calls, verse 22, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Patience? You might pause and wonder why God doesn't just ask them to take things in their own hands and procure justice for themselves. Let's get a team together. Let's rally up. Let's do it. But God says, be patient and be my faithful witness of love and action. Patience is a call to trust in God's work behind the scenes. It only seems like the beast is in charge, my friends. This is only an illusion. Patience, then, is open surrender to God and trust that God is the one who makes all things right. Patience requires pausing to recognize that God is truly faithful, even when things may be going the way we hope. Patience is love and actions. It is not the world's way. It is God's way. Let's turn back to Romans. So we have the beast. See the beast that we've talked about. In Romans 13, I like to call this government the better. Not the best, but the better. In Romans 13, we have a totally different scenario. 
We have a situation that is not yet this desperate. And scholars assert that while Revelation is written in intense persecution, the setting in Romans isn't this bad. Romans is written in the near, near the beginning of the reign of Nero. And while eventually Nero would turn out to be a beast, he doesn't start out this way. Actually, he starts out by making a lot of promises. He promises hope. He promises a rule absent from force. He promises no violence. He promises that they wouldn't be the norm, that this wouldn't be like Rome was used to. And so there was a lot of hope. He promised them he wouldn't be corruptive or disruptive. And so they, they believed him. Even Nero allowed the Jews to return from Rome, and things were looking good. Maybe we could say at this beginning point in Nero's life, he was keeping his campaign promises. In fact, one of the advisors, Seneca, gave several speeches that sought to inspire the empire towards better days. He looked forward to Nero's reign as a time of peace, stability, and no more political backstabbing. This isn't what they were used to. Adding a second example, Seneca and De Clementia urges the emperor on. He wrote, with me, the sword is hidden. No, it is sheathed. I am sparing even the meanest blood. No man fails to find favor at my hands. Imagine the hope. Imagine the changing winds of the Greco-Roman environment. Fresh air is on the way to force out the stagnant smell of spilled blood, sweat, and tears of people fighting for power. As Seneca established, Nero could genuinely boast at this point that he carried the sword only as an adornment, a weapon to be carried but not utilized. We've talked about some history. We've talked about some context. But why does this matter? This matters because Romans 13 is written when government is participating in a better case scenario fashion. It is in this passage and in this environment we make sense of Paul's words. And at this time, we have to pause and remember that in a better case scenario in this environment where there is some hope that things could be better, that society could be better, Christians have no vote, there's no democracy, they have little to no influence, they're a minority in society. Imagine what this would feel like. Can you hop into the DeLorean time machine with me and put yourself in these shoes? It is in this context that Paul asks Christians to submit to authority. How does this play out in the text? This is what Paul has realized. Anytime the government does well, anytime the leaders do well, anytime those who are in power do well, they do God's work. So he says to his audience, consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will be, bring judgment on myself, on themselves. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. Maybe he could have said, do you want to be free? Then put your love in action, no matter who's in charge. If we hear these words in a Revelation 13 context, they do not make sense. How could Paul ask Christians to submit to a beast who does no good deed and how they suffer intensely for the sake of the gospel? If we hear the words in the Romans 13 context, they make sense. Paul acknowledges that any good work done by any human institution coincides with God's work. 
In other words, God is beyond and above all human institutions. And even if there's no Christian representation there, his work can be done. This is incredible to realize. What does it do for us? What is digging up this gem in the biblical context? What does it do for us? It is a genuine reminder, my friends, that our trust is not in human institutions. Our trust is in God. It reminds us that our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate allegiance is not to the ruler of this world. Our ultimate allegiance is to God. In this context, we can see what Paul says with more clarity. For the one who is in authority is God's servant for your good. We've been hinting, and I have just one last point. We've been hinting all along about this final part. And what I want to tell you is that Paul sees a hierarchy in place. Paul sees that God is first, and then human ruling institutions, and then people. From a, from a, we, we see that everyone is then asked to be subject and submit to the authorities. It's very, very likely that Paul wrote this in light of this sentiment. He's responding to human institutions or human people, uh, maybe even his church people, who say something like this. We're too spiritual for this broken age. It's passed away in light of the coming of God's kingdom. And we're not going to pay any attention to the human authorities of this world. We're new in Christ. Christ's kingdom is here. And we're done. We're not going to participate. By the way, this seems like a natural response for a group that has no political allies. However, the problem remains that God's kingdom has not yet come in full. And so Paul is going to remind them that the way they live where they are is an opportunity to be a witness to love and action. This is a powerful revelation because what it means is that all human authorities will eventually submit to the God of the created universe. Even though we live in a great tension now, we can be sure that God will enact justice perfectly as we all bow before his great throne. As a result, in view of God being above and beyond everything, Christians can participate in a way that gives faithful witness to the outside world. They can participate with love and action. They can be visible love to the whole world. And I think that's what's happening here. Visible love to the whole world. Visible love that crosses every single division. In fact, what I think we see here is that anything that we've put our allegiance in, if it's not in God first, we have misplaced allegiance. So what I think the call is, is a radical transformation and a reconfiguration of where our ultimate trust comes from. In fact, what, thinking about how this might fit even in response to human institutions, I think as far as if I could give a little witness to our modern environment, when we give allegiance to a certain political party or a certain thing, and, and maybe even on voting day comes and you find that you're desperately disillusioned because your candidate doesn't win, I think there's a call there to see that God is above all things. He's beyond all things. He's bigger than all things. And we ought in that moment to look up and to have hope. 
and to give our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God, which will never fail. By the way, when everything is done and heaven and earth become one, there is only one kingdom that remains. And that is the kingdom of God. So what am I asking for? I'm asking that as this place, even in this chapel, we feel that heaven and earth, that veil is so thin. I, I can imagine us kind of look, trying to push back that veil a little bit further. And when we push back that veil and we see that we are a part of God's kingdom, we can have genuine unity with one another. In other words, when the veil is fully lifted, we will all be one. I just would like to wrap up with one final thing here, uh, moving forward a little bit and fast forwarding a little bit in view of the time. I, I wanted to imagine what it would like be like. When we read Revel- Romans 13, it's so hard for us to imagine, like, what is Paul actually saying to us? How can we walk forward in the midst of this time? And so I, I just want to end with a letter. I wrote a letter that I think might be kind of Pauline-esque. What would Paul say to us? And we'll close with this letter. Shall we continue in divisions in order that grace may abound. Absolutely not. We are one body of Christ, and we need every part of the body. Shall the hand say to the eye, I have no need of you? No, it shall not. Shall the foot say to the mouth, I have no need of you? No, it shall not. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to make space for one another. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement gave you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Jesus Christ had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you encourage one another and lift one another up, the love of Christ you share becomes visible to those who are watching. I commend you for having a willingness to make sacrifices for the bond of relationship that we value so much. Accept and love one another. Let us do, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for allegiance to anything. Your ultimate allegiance is to God before anything else. Put God first, recognizing that his power is greater than any other power in the universe. Do not do things for human approval, but for the audience of one the one true God over all things. In this, you will be true servants of Christ. Commit yourselves fully to the work of the Lord and let nothing get in your way. Run the race so that those watching will witness the love in your communities. Love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that my love, the love of God, will fill you. He will pour it out on you and empower you. You will not do it alone. He will be with you. 
My friends, he is truly, we've been singing it over and over and over again. You reign above it all. You reign above it all. It's true. He reigns above it all. And so ending, this chapel uh, falls into the heart holiness frame. This is not a time to look to your right or to your left and to say, your love is not good enough, or you need to do this, or you need to do that. This is an opportunity to turn into our hearts, our own hearts, and observe them. My friends, sometimes we put our hope in human things. When have we put our hope in human things that will ultimately fail us? By the way, the same empire, the, 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 the empire that was, there was initial hope, that was the same empire that crushed Paul and martyred him. When have we had these hopes and we've suddenly been disappointed? I invite us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. All of our allegiance belongs.